from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. Jesus presented another parable to them. Now the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his fields. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. And then he told them another parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. Second scripture for this morning is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 to 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. No one will say, Look, see here, or see there. For you see, the kingdom of God is in your midst. If you could pray with me. Almighty God, we desire to learn what it means to be in your kingdom. As citizens of a democratic republic, concepts of royalty and fealty are somewhat foreign to us. Frankly, it even makes some of us bristle. So we ask you to fill this place, fill us with your spirit this morning and lead us into a deeper and more personal understanding of who you desire us to be and how you desire us to, re to relate to you and to each other. May your blessing be upon Pastor Ryan's words and our very hearts as your word is revealed to us. In the Son's name we pray. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Christ Community Church. Thankful to be here and to be gathered with you. Before we jump into the book of Acts, I do want to make a quick and exciting announcement. I don't think they're actually in here. I think they're going to be in second service. But we do have two new families that are joining into membership with us here. And so that is the Thomases, Kurt, Lee, and then their son, Ben, and then also the Kikers. So if you see them after service or in between services, uh, make sure you congratulate them. As well, for those of you who are interested in membership and learning about what that means at Christ Community Church, we do have a membership class next month uh, during the month of May, so make sure you're watching for an announcement for that. All right, now back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, if you will go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your devices. The great theologian and philosopher Johnny Cash once said, I have tried drugs and a little of everything else, and there is nothing in the world more soul-satisfying than having the kingdom of God building inside you and growing. Now, theological precision aside, what Johnny is getting at is that there is something intrinsically different, intrinsically soul-satisfying, intrinsically life-altering when a man or a woman becomes a born-again child of God. When he or she is transferred, as it says in Colossians 1, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, there is a miraculous change that takes place. 
And as Christ has inaugurated his kingdom here on earth, and then as it progresses throughout the world and reverses the effects of the fall, there is a change taking place, a change that is founded upon the power of God. It is, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, that the kingdom of God is of power. And this, friends, is what we've seen time and time again throughout our study of Acts as the kingdom has been ushered in and now it's spreading throughout these cities and these villages and it's turning things upside down. It's astounding people left and right. And not only is it astounding them, but it is saving them. The kingdom of God is growing in this passage. It's been growing the past 2,000 years and it is growing and going forth today. And that is truly soul-satisfying So today we're looking at a section of Acts chapter 9 in which the gospel is going forward and it's being confirmed. God's kingdom is expanding and Christ's church is being built up. And my prayer is that like Johnny Cash, our souls would be satisfied in that. So allow me to read the entire passage for us, Acts chapter 9, verses 31 to 43. So the church throughout all Judea... Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. As Peter was traveling from place to place, he also came down to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Second story in verse 36. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. She was also doing good works and acts of charity. About that time, she became sick and died. After washing her, they placed her in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples heard that Peter was there and sent two men to him who urged him, don't delay in coming with us. Peter got up. And went with them. When he arrived, they led him to the room upstairs, and all the widows approached him, weeping and showing him the robes and the clothes that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down, he prayed, and turning toward the body, said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Peter stayed for some time in Joppa with Simon, a leather tanner. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you that we, as your gathered church, were able to worship you in spirit and truth. And I pray simply now that you would turn our hearts and our minds to the study of your word that you would help us to see what is happening as your kingdom is going forth, as your church is being built up in this passage. May we glorify you. May we praise you for the work that you're doing in this passage and in our world today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our text broadly outlines into three sections or three passages in essence this morning. We're going to follow that outline as well. So I'd like to give it to you up front, and it's really looking at the relationship between the kingdom and three different themes. So I'll give them to you now. It is the kingdom and the saints, the kingdom and sorrow, and the kingdom and the Savior. Saints, sorrow, and the Savior is what we're going to see in this passage. So first, the kingdom and the saints. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, 
it increased in numbers. There are seven summary statements found throughout the book of Acts, and this is one of them, that Luke provides us both to summarize the progress of the early church and then also to use as a transition statement between various sections of his narrative. So after taking, if you remember, a brief break following the ministry of Peter, and we looked at the conversion of Saul, now we're returning to Peter, and we have this summary statement. The church, it says in verse 31, is speaking of the universal church. And it's saying, in part, now that Saul isn't persecuting us like crazy, there is peace. The church is being strengthened, or your translation might say, built up. So yes, we know from later on in the book of Acts that there is persecution going to come back, but right now, there is peace. And what we need to see from this statement is the relationship between the kingdom and its people, between the kingdom of God and the saints of God. Because the question I have for us is, how does the universal church manifest the kingdom of God today? What I'm going to argue is that it's through the local church. The universal is manifested today through the local. God's kingdom is spreading town by town and city by city and state by state and country by country through the planting of churches and through the preaching of the gospel. That is how the kingdom is being manifest today. Our local churches are really outposts of the kingdom of God as we see what kingdom life should look like with our fellow saints. This is where we practice the one another's of scripture. This is where we often exercise the gifts that Christ has given to us, his body. This is where we grow together in our love for God, our love for his word, and our love for his people. You see, Jesus Christ ushered in the kingdom, and then he established his church to further that kingdom. So they go hand in hand, not to be pitted against one another. So yes, someone can do good today in a parachurch ministry or some other nonprofit ministry, but we should get very nervous when people talk about furthering the kingdom of God, but they think that they can do that apart from the local church. There should be caution there. The emphasis throughout the entire book of Acts and really the entire New Testament is furthering the kingdom of God through the establishment and planting of local churches. We cannot miss that. Now with my diatribe aside, it's the second half of the verse that I want us to focus on as our responsibility as the saints of God. How should kingdom-minded people behave? What should the saints of God in this room be characterized I think this verse provides us with an answer, and I can't, wait, I can't think of a better way to characterize a church than by saying they lived in the fear of the Lord and were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. So what are these two things? First, the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear God? When somebody asks you that, how do you answer it? If we are his people, though, why should we fear him? Isn't God love? Doesn't perfect love cast out all fear? If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you've probably heard some of this line of reasoning. Why should we fear God? He loves us. And for sure he does. And for sure he is love. But the Bible does talk about a healthy and reverent fear of God. And while I don't have time to do a deep study on it, a few scriptures are helpful in guiding our thinking this morning. I'm going to go through them quickly. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. 
Proverbs 14. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning people away from the snares of death. Matthew 10. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Philippians 2, therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And lastly, 2 Corinthians 7, so then, dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And friends, you know this, there are so many other passages that speak on the fear of the Lord, but it is clear throughout the scriptures that fearing the Lord is a good thing. So what is a definition that we can work with? How can we explain it? If you're taking notes, feel free to write this down. The fear of the Lord is the sense of awe, wonder, and reverence that God is infinitely holy and infinitely powerful and that he is not to be thought lightly of. Properly fearing the Lord leads us to love and revere him more. Notice the connection between those two sentences. When you are awed by God, when he is revered by you, you recognize his infinite holiness and his power, then that leads you not to think lightly of him, but actually to revere him more. And when that takes place, you love him more. Your love of God is connected to your fear of God. It's kind of a mouthful in that definition, so I apologize. Maybe this one's more simpler. As A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your mind when you think about God? You see, he's not just the big man upstairs. He's not a genie in a bottle that we can use however we want. And ultimately, he is not a God to be trifled with. I think the early church definitely had a fear of God because what had just happened a few chapters previous, the Lord took the lives of Ananias and Sapphira. He took their lives. The the purity of his church is protected by him. That's going to spark some fear in this early church. So he is not to be trifled with. His love is perfect. His wrath is perfect. His justice is perfect. And his will is perfect. So if you have been thinking of God lightly, Even sparingly, if you only think of God when you walk through these doors, if you don't really dwell and meditate on what God did for you in Jesus Christ and why he had to send his own son to deal with sin, if you don't think on these things and remind yourself that the Lord Jesus stood condemned in your place, in my place, then maybe you aren't properly fearing the Lord. And maybe you should pray that God would give you a grander vision of himself and he would kindle in you a healthy fear of him. The Lord will answer that prayer. The scriptures are filled with references and what it means to fear the Lord, so may we, like the early church, resolve to fear him well. Secondly, it says that they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of the Holy Spirit. Not only did they live in the fear of the Lord, but they were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. As a church collectively... And I'm assuming individually, they were encouraged as what the Lord was doing through them. So this makes me practically ask, ask, are you often encouraged by the Holy Spirit? Are we as a church encouraged by the Holy Spirit? 
Now, I don't want to paint a Bob Ross happy tree picture for us of the Christian life in here. I realize that with every season of life, for every saint in here, there are times of plenty and times of lacking. There are times of immense joy and times of immense suffering. So I don't want to just say, hey, be encouraged by the Holy Spirit. But I do think that the Holy Spirit is often more at work than we realize. And I do think that this encouragement for the church was, in part, them recognizing what he had been doing in their midst. Friends, just last week, we baptized 15 people in here. It's amazing when one person gets baptized, right? Yes. It's amazing when one person gets baptized, let alone 15. There are things that God is accomplishing through this local church and through our individual lives that we can be encouraged by. But time and time again... We will have to drag our eyes off of ourselves and off of our circumstances and step back and see the big picture of God's kingdom advancing. Because when we do that, when we fight to do that, then collectively it is very hard for us not to be encouraged by the work of the Holy Spirit. So the beautiful thing we see in Acts is that in the midst of a fallen world, the kingdom of God has broken in and has begun a reversal of sorts. And as this reversal progresses, we live in this tension. We live between two worlds. We call it the already and the not yet. As we await Christ's coming, as we work hard to advance the kingdom, as all of that takes place, we also have to deal with the reality that we live in a fallen world, a world of sin and suffering and sorrow. So this brings us to our second consideration this morning, the kingdom and sorrow. Here we have two stories, if I can summarize them. Here we have two stories, two scenes laid out before us that point to the kingdom of God advancing into the world. First, we have Aeneas, a man who is paralyzed and has been bedridden for eight years. He is a man who, during this time, is hopeless. One could argue that maybe he even had a greater degree of hopelessness because it seems like he could walk before. He's only been paralyzed for eight years. He remembers what it's like, but now he is paralyzed. And here the saints in Lydda were aware of him, and they were possibly trying to minister to him, trying to help take care of him. But we have no idea if he was a believer or not. He was paralyzed, though. He was unable to walk. So he lays in bed. In this culture, in this time, not being able to do anything, not having a wheelchair, he lays in bed day after day, aware of his condition, aware of his misery, and aware of his neediness. But then Peter travels to visit the saints in this town and comes upon Aeneas. Skipping down to the second story, we have the story of Tabitha or of Dorcas. She's a lovely woman, a disciple, Actually, the only woman in the New Testament specifically called the word disciple, even though we know that there were tons others. Verse 36 tells us that she was always doing good works and acts of charity. This was a woman who lived out her faith, who was overwhelmed by the love of Christ, and who sought to care for others, to do what she could for them. She didn't have much in this world, but she had a consecrated needle to do the work of the Lord, and so she did. There's a lesson for us there, is there not? She did what she could with what she had. She had made robes and clothes for the widows, and then she became sick, and she died. And so the saints send for Peter, and I, I think that they're actually sending for him, most likely to, to comfort the widows, to give them encouragement. 
You see, friends, as I said earlier, these two stories point to the kingdom of God advancing, but at first reading them, it doesn't feel like it. The miracles of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles, they often center around an undoing of the effects of the fall, an undoing of Genesis 3, undoing the effects of sin that bring about sickness and suffering and sin in our, and even death in our lives. And as I said earlier, we live in the midst of this two ages, and it's true. So while the kingdom has come and it is advancing, it has not yet been fully consummated. There is still another kingdom at work here. It's the kingdom of the world. And so while we await that consummation, there is sin, and there is war, and there is suffering, and strife, and sorrow, and death. Because while Aeneas was healed, how many others throughout history haven't been? While Tabitha was brought back to life, how many other saints throughout history haven't been? We exist in a world with sorrow and suffering, and that reality points us to a greater reality. This is not how it was supposed to be. This is not the world that we were intended to live in. What took place in Genesis 3 affects every single part of our lives now, and so we can't forget to look forward with hope to one day when all will be made right. And we can't forget, though, to also remember how it originally was. We can't forget to look back, too, how it was supposed to be. Friends, if this is our best life now, then God help us all. You see, the inbreaking of the kingdom is reversing what took place in the garden, reversing the effects that we see day after day. But the reality for us is that we still live in this world with all of its brokenness, waiting until it is one day healed. Practically, this means then that many of us suffer. Christianity doesn't exempt us from that. This means that we in the church daily deal with the effects of sin from struggling family relationships between a parent and a child or between two spouses or to the difficulties of diseases that we face in here. We age. We get wrinkles. We contract cancer and then we too die. We exist in this fallen world. We're not spared from it as much as we would like to be. And so church, how should we as saints, live in the midst of two worlds, in the midst of two kingdoms, as citizens of a new kingdom, but still dealing with the effects of the other kingdom? How should we think about the kingdom and the sorrow that we experience? I'd like to give us three thoughts that might be helpful. First, acknowledge the reality of suffering and sorrow. Acknowledge the reality of suffering and sorrow. We have to understand how these two kingdoms are currently existing in the world for us to have a proper view of suffering in this world. If we don't, we end up erring too far one way or another. One side has us downplay the reality of sorrow so much that we almost make it seem like the Christian life is full of rainbows and butterflies and that by simply coming to Jesus, all of your problems will be fixed. The other side errs in that it only focuses on the suffering and the heartache evident in the world, and therefore it becomes callous to the world. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. What's the point of even trying? Both sides err too far one way or another. We have to land in the healthy middle ground of acknowledging it and then working towards alleviating it. The Christian life isn't all rainbows and butterflies. Jesus told us to follow him, and how do we do that? By the cruciform life, by day by day, picking up our cross and following him. 
The way of Jesus doesn't promise an easy life. It promises eternal life. A life of joy and faith and hope that isn't devoid of suffering, but looks forward to the day when suffering is no more. And as well, we're not to be calloused on this side. We're not to be calloused to the world. We have been given a commission by our Lord to make disciples and to be hard at work accomplishing our Lord's work. There will be a judgment for us as well, friends. There will be a judgment for Christians based off of our works. So we cannot lose hope in this world. We cannot look at the suffering and become calloused to it. It is as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, We as believers do not grieve as those with no hope. Don't lose your hope. Things might seem hopeless to the world, but they are never hopeless to the Christian. We must live in this middle ground now. Secondly, weep with those who weep. Acknowledge the reality of suffering and then weep with those who weep. In the midst of a world that still has suffering and sorrow, it's all the more imperative that we as the body of Christ be his hands and his feet today. Our Lord wept at the effects of sin and death in John chapter 11. He was, as Isaiah 53 tells us, despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. We didn't even like the appearance of him. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, what we see time and time again throughout the Gospels is that Jesus pursues the outcast. Those who suffer. He comforts those who mourn. He wipes the tears of the sorrowful. He left perfection to enter into our broken world. He learned obedience, as Philippians 2 tells us, and he was marked by compassion for the lost. Is that true of us? Do we care for the brokenhearted amongst us? Are we too busy, too distracted to notice them? And in speaking in light of weeping with those who weep, whenever you do minister to somebody who is suffering, we need to remember that in the midst of suffering, the most comforting answers can often be simply our presence, our help, our tears, even our silence with them. Helping them around the house or making someone dinner may be far more of a spiritual exercise than explaining Romans 8.28 to them. We need to remember that. And the temptation, though, let me speak to the other side, the temptation for those in here who are suffering who are going through great difficulty, who are sorrowful right now, the temptation for you is to isolate yourself. Don't do that. Pain and suffering can often bring about a profound sense of loneliness in our lives. We think we are cut off from everyone and that no one could ever understand what we're going through. The truth is, though, that talking things over with other Christians is often the most helpful thing that you can do. In thinking about the kingdom and suffering, we must genuinely seek to love and care for one another by mourning with those who mourn, by weeping with those who weep. And lastly, look to the Savior. In the midst of sin and sorrow and suffering, we must look to the author and the perfecter of our faith. We must look to the community that Christ has given to us, his church, to help us in our time of need. We can't isolate ourselves. We can't lean on our own understanding and our own power to make it. That is a sure way to sin. Vulnerability, a desire for accountability, you asking somebody else for prayer might make you feel like a weak or needy person, but guess what? You are. We all are in different ways. It's why we need saving. It's why salvation had to come from God. We can't do it in and of ourselves. But time and time again, we will have to hold one another accountable 
in this room, in this church, and continuing to cast our cares and our eyes on Jesus. In the midst of a sorrowful world, kingdom-minded people are focused on the king. This brings us to our last point to consider from this passage, the kingdom and the savior. We have the kingdom and the saints, the kingdom and sorrow, and the kingdom and the savior. Let me read the, the last couple verses from each of these stories. Verses 34 to 35, then 40 to 42. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately he got up. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And then verse 40, Peter sent them all out of the room. He knelt down and prayed and turning toward the body said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter and sat up. He gave her his hand and helped her stand up. He called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. This became known throughout Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. It might not be apparent to us at first, but the focus here is on Jesus Christ doing the healing. Peter, as an apostle, recognizes that he has no power in and of himself to do anything. While Jesus told the little girl, if you remember back in Mark chapter 5, he said, Talitha, little girl, get up here. Peter invokes the name of Jesus Christ. Any healing, any miraculous work that is accomplished through him is solely because of Jesus. The same is true in the second account, though. Peter enters into the room after he asks everybody to leave, and he kneels down and he prays. He is not like Jesus standing at the tomb of Lazarus and calling him forth. No, he has to pray to God for him to work. In both cases, it is clear that it is the Lord doing the work. And so I really don't want us to gloss over this truth here. All kingdom work, all work that we do in the church should ultimately be pointing to the Savior. All that we do in the church should be done as worship unto the Savior. From those who greet, to those who teach, to those who cook, to those who sow, to those who serve in homes, to those who are seeking to be hospitable, invite people into their homes. All that we do is to be done to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't preach Christ to magnify ourselves. We don't feed the needy and clothe the poor to make ourselves look better. We don't minister to widows and orphans and go on missions trips or do any other kingdom-minded work in order to elevate our own status or our own worth in the kingdom. There is one king and one savior, and all that we do, we do for him and as worship unto him. Peter and the apostles understood their neediness. They understood that it was the Lord who had to work in their midst, understood their place in the kingdom, and we must as well. For our church here, Christ Community Church, to be pointing people to the Savior, we all must understand our need for a Savior. For our church to understand its work as kingdom work, we all must understand our calling before the King. So before we get to the application, we must wrestle with this reality that this text confronts us with. What these two stories clearly show us is the reality that we cannot save ourselves. Like paralyzed Aeneas, we need Christ to heal us. Like dead Tabitha, we need to be given new life. And the only way this occurs is through the power of the word of God. If you are here and you have not trusted in Christ, then you are more like Aeneas and more like Tabitha than you realize. You have no ability to save yourself. You can't take a single step toward God, and you can't bring new life to your heart. Someone must come to you, and what we acknowledge here in this room is that someone did. His name is Jesus Christ, and he is our Savior. 
He came to those who were weak and helpless and who were dead, who despised and rejected them, and he died for them. It is, as Romans 5 says, that while we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us, apart from Christ. Until you see the helplessness of your state, until you acknowledge that you can't do anything in your own power, then you won't see your need for a Savior, and you won't be a part of the kingdom of God. That is the reality that these scriptures confront us with. So my prayer is that God would open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears this morning to behold the wondrous works of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me help us apply this text to our hearts real quick this morning. I'm going to follow the outline that we have of saints, sorrow, and savior and say something about each of those. First, regarding the saints, let us be purposeful in the work of our king. We have been given a commission to make disciples, and it is clear in this room that we are not all given the same gifts. That's a good thing. We make up the body, not all our heads, not all our feet, not all our hands. That would just look weird anyway, but we are a part of the body, and we've been given different gifts. So like Tabitha, may we use what we have been given to the glory of God. Practically, what I'm telling you is, don't sit on the sidelines. Don't wait to be served. Serve others. A life of service expressed through the local church is how God's people today further the kingdom of God. Are you a part of that? Are you seeking to do that in your life? Let us be found busy doing the work of our Lord. Secondly, sorrow. Let us be purposeful with the heart of our King. Recognize, friends, again, that we live in a world still plagued by sin and suffering and death. Recognize, though, that Christ has inaugurated his kingdom as well. And so for those of us in here who are indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit, may we seek to be present in the midst of other sorrows. At least 13 times throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to love one another. And how do we see love most manifestly expressed It's through the example and the actions of Jesus Christ who loved us enough to die in our place. May we model well the heart of our King to a world filled with sorrow. Lastly, in regards to the Savior, let us be purposeful in proclaiming our King. Let us be purposeful in the work of our King. Let us be purposeful with the heart of our King. And let us be purposeful in proclaiming our King. Notice once more in the text the effects of these miracles. Verse 35 says that those who lived in the towns turned to the Lord. Verse 42 says that many came to believe throughout Joppa. The message of Christ was at work then and it is at work today. Do you believe that? Do you live in light of that? We need this reminder often because we are a people prone to wandering, prone to forgetting, prone to relying on our own strength and thinking that salvation is up to us. We have been given a commission to make disciples. We are tasked to proclaim the good news of our Savior and our King. And the Spirit, friends, the Spirit is willing to use you to proclaim. Willing to use you to proclaim to family and neighbors and co-workers and friends. So take courage. Take comfort. Take courage this morning that our King and our Savior is responsible for doing all of the saving. And He asks you to be faithful in proclaiming. He does the saving. Don't put that on yourself. So may we rise to that calling. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for your church. I thank you for the reality that your kingdom has broken into this world, and that your kingdom is to be furthered 
through the church. I thank you that the universal church is manifested through the local church and that we have been given a task, given a commission by our Lord. So God, I realize that there are so many things vying for our attention, vying for our comfort, so many idols in our life that seek to distract us from the commission that we have been given. Would you rid them from our hearts? Would you rid us of a fear of man and seek for us to fear you more? Would you help us to work hard at this commission that we've been given, recognizing that we all have different gifts, but collectively together, your church is going forward. Help each and every one of us to be a part of that, to be looking to our Savior. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.